You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and uh, some reason we let people listen to it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if this should be out in public, but whatever. We cave to peer pressure. <laughs> uh, I think it was a positive peer pressure. I mean, there's, there is a such thing. No, there really is. And I, I, I think we overlook that sometimes that, you know, having the right kinds of friends, you know, normally we call it support, but it really is the same thing as peer pressure just in a positive way so yeah well yeah exactly well it, yeah you know the I, I think uh i think jordan peterson i was listening to yes i listen to jordan peterson <laughs> i don't subscribe to everything he says but i think it's interesting to listen to people who i think it's interesting to listen to people who are vilified mm-hmm. to figure out if it you know I, I think a lot of his vilification was is largely undeserved but um I'm definitely not like sold out for him, but one of the things that he says is that most of our sanity is is outsourced. It's like uh, <laughs> it's like something like I forget what the percentage is like seventy. I think it's like seventy percent of our of our sanity is is uh, because of our our society and our community. And uh, without that, we just kind of would you know there would just be things we wouldn't do. And well. I'm like, that kind of makes sense. When you think of the guy who spends his whole life in his mom's basement, is he weird because he was in the basement or is he in the basement because he's weird? I mean, there's that kind of, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Right. So I can can see the logic in that. And I think Peterson has some very thought-provoking things to say. Like you said, may not always agree with them, but there there are times I've listened, you know, occasionally when you've like, hey, you need to hear this one or whatever. Mm. And... And I do think that we as Christians have a, this, we have this knee-jerk reaction where we just like run away from anything that's not, you know, approved listening or viewing. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the right way to, to deal with things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that we need to be willing to engage with discernment. But yeah. that requires work. Yeah. And, and, and again. It was just, you know, I wanted to cite my source on that more than anything. Right. It's not an endorsement necessarily, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I listen to uh, listen to Malcolm Gladwell quite a bit, <laughs> and uh, I don't agree with everything he says. I thought uh, there was another podcast you were going to say. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't agree with them at all. But anyway. <laughs> there is another podcast I listen to that I disagree with most of what they say, um, but I'm not going to endorse them. Right. <laughs> not even going to no. cite them. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> I mean, I mean, I I would sooner tell people that I listen to Bill Maher sometimes and agree with more of his stuff than what most Christians would care to admit. Yeah, um, it's you know, yeah. I, I'm just because I could go off about some of the things that are said on Christian podcast, and you know, and that's not to say there's not some good ones out there. There are some amazing Christian podcasts out absolutely. there, absolutely. And I highly advise that you know the people check out. Obviously, the stuff on Raven Creek, we like those people. We like what they're saying, or they wouldn't be a part of Raven Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, you know, there's Naked Bible, there's Lord of the Spirits, there's, um, you know, there's so many other you know, Sheila Gregoire's um, podcast. Was it? Um, the Bear Marriage. The Bear Marriage, also another great resource. And so, yeah, you know. And I'm, I'm looking at my playlist here, and, and uh, the, uh, there's uh, The Bear Marriage. There's Asking T. Write Anything. Another uh, good one. Sot- Soteriology 101, uh, Kingdom Roots, um, mm-hmm. Theology in the Raw. Uh, Unbelievable. Now, theology in the Raw. The- theology in the Raw is intense. Like, mm-hmm. they tackle some hard topics. So if you're... Um, if you're not ready for that one to like, I mean, and not saying like deep, petty theological topics, like very um, current events. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else do I have here? I've got, I've got a whole bunch of stuff. Unbelievable uh, Eden, on script. the Eden podcast. Very good. Um, that was really good. Um, yeah, a whole whole bunch of good Christian podcasts out there. And um, it- so. Go anybody, check those out. I was going to say, anybody who's teaching should be learning. 
if you're not learning while you're teaching, you're going to get stuck in your own head and you aren't going to be teaching good stuff. And so uh, whether you're learning by listening to people who know more about and uh, the topics you're talking about, they're, they're talking on, in a deeper way about the topics you're talking about, or people who disagree, who are making you rethink and, and kind of solidify why you believe or you know, think a certain way about a topic. Those are all methods of, of learning. You know, one of my favorite mm -hmm. things to do before podcast was to get a book that I completely disagreed with and then just take it apart. And right. so that, that's a fun, fun way for me anyway, to, to have the debate without being mean to another person. <laughs> so I don't have to be snarky to someone on Facebook and I can just say, mm -hmm. this is, this is what I think. And here's why. And I can kind of just explore the reasons for, for what I think and still entertain some valid critiques of what I think. And I think that's good. And mm -hmm. I, I think it actually expands my faith. It doesn't diminish my faith. And, you know, there's a few times doing that, that I've come up against topics that, or views that I've had to stop and rethink what I believe because someone did offer an insight or a viewpoint that I was not expecting. And that's been good because almost invariably, this is the fun thing about God, almost invariably, after I kind of work through one of those great big messes of a problem, logical problems or theological problems, mm -hmm. within a week or two weeks at the most, I will encounter someone who is dealing with the same issue. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember how many times that's happened. So sometimes I think those are ways to prepare us for engaging other people, like real people who need those answers. And it's not just an intellectual, um, you know, entertainment for them. So, right. you know, all of that to say, learn. I don't care how you're learning. Just learn something. <laughs> exactly. And, and speaking of learning, uh, one more, I'm going to plug one more podcast. Um, it's, it's not posting any new episodes. Uh, but exploring my strange Bible, it's Tim Mackey uh, basically went back and uh, gathered up all of his sermons he's done over mm -hmm. the years, or not all of them, but a large number of sermons and public speeches he's given, and and uh, it's it's on there, and I like it. Excuse me, I like it because he goes really in depth on a lot of stuff. Like I like his Bible project uh, mm -hmm. material. But I always feel like the Bible Project stuff stops way, way short of what Mackie is capable of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, Tim, if you are out there, I know, you're, I know the Bible Project <laughs> stuff is really good. I enjoy it. It's great. My kids and I watch it. It's, it's a great condensed way of doing things. But I know you've got a lot more information up there. <laughs> and the, the Bible Project format is great for what it's doing. But I think... Tim, if you're listening, I think you've got a little more to offer um, because I've heard your full sermons and they are amazing. Um, so that's, yeah. put that out there. We're, we're giant nerds, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, like the, the Exploring My Strange Bibles ha has one of the best treatments of Jonah I've ever heard. Yeah, I still haven't listened to it. I, you've recommended it several times, so I know it stuck with you. It's not, you know. I need to go back and listen to that. And, you know, maybe when we get to where Jonah fits into the whole timeline with the history of Israel as presented in Kings, I'll get back. I'll get to that one. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Go, and in the meantime, those of you listening, go check that out in preparation because he really, I mean, I think he knocks it out of the park. I, I really, I've never heard anyone preach so well uh, and bring in so much good information on it. And, and make it accessible. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. was theologically, it was super in-depth, but it was very, very accessible. And that's what we should be striving for. I mean, that that's, should be the goal, right? I mean, Jesus, that's what he took, the, like the Torah and all the teachings surrounding the Torah, and he broke it down into something accessible. So I, I think that should tell us what we need to be working towards in our own presentation and our own teaching of the Bible. How do we help people understand? I mean. Don't get me wrong, I love a great philosophical topic. I love those existential, you know, puzzles. But if it's not applicable, are we really helping anyone? Right. So, and, and he makes it accessible without dumbing it down. That that's was the skill. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I actually once heard a preacher, I wanna I can't remember I think it was I wanna say it was Piper 
said that Jesus took the all the stuff from the Torah and dumbed it down. And I'm like, no, he didn't. Oh my goodness. No. I'm like, I, I, I can't, don't, don't quote me on that source. I, I, but I'm, I know I was, it was, it was on, I was listening to it or actually a coworker was listening to it when I was working at the, the mail room at, at a Christian video company. Um, and I was just like, who is this? This is, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he said it was Piper, but anyway, that, I won't talk about Piper. Um, so no, no, no. Yeah. We, uh, we want to keep a nice PG rating for our podcast. So anyway, okay. So second King, first Kings chapter three, <laughs> we are talking about Solomon and we wrapped up on, you know, I don't even have the verse notation here. Um, I think it's like first, excuse me while I play a little trombone with my Bible here. Um, verse four verse four is where we're at so um and we start talking about why solomon would go to gibeon and we talked about all the things that happened at gibeon and if you want to go over that list listen to last week's episode because a lot of pivotal things happened at gibeon and we talked about how one of the reasons Solomon may have chosen to to worship there as his first public act of worship was to say, hey, I recognize there's a divide in the family, uh, the, the family of David. I recognize there's a divide in the, the nation. And a lot of these things have played out in the specific spot. So now we're going to reunify the nation. We're going to bring it together. We're going to recognize that Benjamin's still a significant tribe and part of God's plan of salvation. They've not lost that, even though they're no longer king. Uh, I'm going to recognize that our family needs to be family and not commit acts of violence against each other. And so there may be... It's always a good thing. You know, you would think this would be a no-brainer, but evidently with Joab, it wasn't. Um, So, you know, there's these kinds of issues that uh, I think were kind of being symbolically addressed by the fact that this is the location Solomon chose, because there is an altar in Jerusalem. Solomon did not have to go to to Gibeon to, to do this. And so the choice is very deliberate. And we know that Solomon is the kind of guy who he's wise, he makes good decisions, he's going to play the political games. We have already seen that. He's formed an alliance with Pharaoh by marrying his daughter. He does all the things right from a political perspective. And so it would make sense to me that this is what he's doing. But then there's another thing that happens in um, that same verse where it says that Gibeon is a, is a great high place. It, it, it's a very important high place. And so you've got to ask, why is Gibeon, you know, kind of um, singled out as being a great high place, not just a high place? Because there's several high places and they're, they're pretty much wherever people worship at this point in time. And so um, the answer, surprisingly, is in First Chronicles 21, 28. It's right there in your Bible. Uh, it says, this is, um, well, let me give a little context. This is right after David finishes the census. And this is when God is sending the angel to, to um, inflict a plague on Jerusalem and David and the elders pray. And um, we know that he bought the field where that's where he brings the, the ark. He built the, the um, altar there. He worships. And he says that... Um, well, the writer Chronicles says, for the tabernacle of the Lord, which has been, which had been made in the wilderness, which Moses had made, sorry, and the altar of the burnt offering, which were at the time of, were at that time at the high place of Gibeon. So it's a great high place because aside from the ark, all of the other accoutrements that belong to the tabernacle that traveled through the wilderness with the children of Israel, they're still at Gibeon. So we still have the tent, we still have the altar. Uh, there's a Good chance that we have other things, like there's a candlestick, and when you get into all of the accessories of the tabernacle and you realize it's more than just the ark, that they weren't <laughs> brought to Jerusalem. So this makes sense. I mean, if Solomon's going to go to this place, it, it makes sense. And, and I kind of brought this up at the begin, at the end of last week's episode, but I do want to acknowledge again, this is where I made a mistake. When I began studying this, and I think it's something we all do, so I think it's worth pointing out. I did it, and uh, you know we need to be careful not to do it. I trusted my commentaries. 
I didn't bother to double check uh, why they were discussing this, why this is such an issue with Solomon. Um, I didn't take time to look up some of the articles. I, I did take time to look up some of the articles on high places, which also talk about the legitimacy of Solomon's worship at this place. And I began writing my notes for the podcast before I completed all my research. Because when I got to 1 Kings 3, 4, then I realized, oh, wait a minute. When I'm looking at Gibeon and other places where Gibeon is mentioned, I have an answer as to why it's a great high place. Now, if you pause, you take just one second and you reread um, verses 2 and 3, and we're told that Solomon goes to the tabernacle instead of the, the high place, or we're told that Solomon goes to the altar that was specifically constructed for these kinds of offering instead of calling it a high place. Now there's no debate about the legitimacy of what Solomon's doing here. And so you, you can see how that difference in wording, even though both are accurate, both are true, changes your perspective. Because we don't think anything about Solomon going to the tabernacle. We don't think anything about Solomon going to a, a uh, altar that was built specifically for the, burn, the burning of these whole burnt offerings. And so because we didn't take time to look forward and look at other verses addressing the same issues, we wind up in kind of this pointless debate. And maybe if we hadn't lost time with all that debate, we could have a better discussion and, you know, talk about, you know, what about the legitimacy of keeping the tabernacle at the high place? Why wasn't it moved when the, when the ark was moved? That might be more interesting than whether or not Solomon should have gone to the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And so we, we sometimes get too caught up in a, our little niche of the Bible we're exploring. And this is the reason why it's so important to have that broad overview and being willing to look at various passages passages that relate and connect to whatever it is you're studying. Because if you study a passage, any passage in isolation, you can get led astray, mm -hmm. even by some really smart people. And so I, I want to, to point that out as something that we can all fall victims to and, you know, victims of our own, you know, narrow-mindedness when it comes to scripture. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is something going on here with the writing because the writer of Samuel, he's not as anti-Solomon as he was anti-Kings, because remember Kings and Samuel are the same book, not as anti-Solomon as he was anti-David, but he does want to kind of present this image of Solomon that's not as pristine, it, it, it's not as grand as the way the writer of Chronicle, the Chronicles puts it. I mean, when you read Chronicles, Solomon is the golden child. He can do no wrong. It, it, there's just absolutely no doubt cast on any of his decisions, any of the events surrounding him coming into power. All of these things are good. They're, they're um, laudable. We, we, we need to celebrate that this is the kind of king that Israel has when Israel is you know, operating as she should. And so the writer of Samuel wants you to really stop and think about who is in charge, what kind of people they are, and what does having power do to an individual? Because having power seems to always lead to problems. And mm -hmm. so that's what we need to be thinking about as we read Solomon's story. But um, Anyhow, First Chronicles twenty one thirty also tells us that Gibeon did sorry that David did not go to Gibeon to worship the Lord, and it says specifically that David could not go before it, it being the tabernacle and the altar, to require inquire of the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Now, First Chronicles twenty two one says David did declare that the altar was um, constructed in Israel shall be an altar a burnt offering for Israel. So again, we have another altar that is also constructed for burnt offerings. And if you remember last week, I mentioned something about David. Uh, the rabbi said David didn't offer sacrifices on high places. This is where they get this idea that since he, he had built this, this altar outside of Jerusalem on the edges of Jerusalem, that he didn't have to go to the high places. 
the question is, when David decided not to go to these high places, was it from the point that this particular altar was constructed or was it something he had done all times? That word shall be, does it mean that it shall be a burnt offering from this point that it is constructed or at the point that the tabernacle is, or the temple is completed? Um, the shall be seems to point to a future point in time. It doesn't seem to negate the use of Gibeon just yet. And mm-hmm. so it seems that Gibeon was still the, the recognized place of worship when Solomon took the throne. So, you know, I think, like I said, we just, the debate is, it, it, it's distracting. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really distracting. And we need to really stop and ask ourselves when there is a debate, does the Bible address this someplace else? Because what I'm finding over and over again, when I read the scriptures, whenever I look at the Bible in totality, a lot of the debates can be settled if we look at other passages. And so we don't have to get caught up in this, oh my, there's this great deal of confusion and nobody knows what they're talking about. You know, that's just a scare tactic to get you not to trust your Bible. And so pause, take a minute. Sometimes it's as simple as looking up the keywords and just going through where the Bible talks about these keywords. And and it doesn't take very long. You you can get on, you know, you can get out of Strong's for this. You can do a, a Bible Hub search, Logos if you've got it. I it's very easy to do. It just takes some time. And mm. you know, I talked to somebody about this and they were like, "Oh, but now I'm getting away from the passage I was studying. Who cares? If you're studying the Bible in order to understand a specific passage, you're, you're still doing okay. You know, the point isn't that you know one particular passage and that passage alone. The, the point is, is that you know what can be known about the issues the Bible is speaking of. So anyway, verse five says, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, and I shall give to you. So uh, House, who's one of our, um, our commentators that we're referring to, sees this offer as a reaffirmation of the Davidic uh, covenant, which is made in 2 Samuel 7, uh, specifically verses 12 and verse 14. It says, when your days are fulfilled, and this is God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So. We see God telling David, hey, I'm going to do this. Even though you're dead and you're incapable of helping your son at this point, I'm going to take care of it. You don't have to worry. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, this is a completely, completely unprecedented statement in the Hebrew Bible uh, because God had never up to this point said, I will do this. Always before within the Torah, it's the if-then. If you do this, then I will do that. If you do this, then I will do something else. I mean, there, there's always these conditions, not on God's love, but on his expressions of love. And I think that's one thing we need to, to make a distinction. You can love unconditionally. God can love unconditionally while still having conditions about how that love is expressed. So God says, if you love me, and we talked about the, the uh, definition of love from a biblical uh, viewpoint last week, if you love me, you obey me, you keep my statute, statutes, you observe my laws, and I'm going to bless you. You violate these laws, you violate the commands I've given you, there's going to be curses. So this is a radical shift within the scriptures of how God deals with humanity. And, you know, the thing is, this is foreshadowing because whenever you look at what happens in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, what Jesus says, you hear this kind of idea repeated. And those verses say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks also receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus is essentially saying that the offer presented to Solomon in this place of worship at Gibeon, it's already ours. 
it's a standard. It's a given. We don't have to have God show up and make this announcement verbally to us. We just have to have faith in what has already been stated. This is how the kingdom operates. Because just as Solomon became a son to God, as stated in 2 Samuel 7, and he became a father to, uh, he, you know, God became a father to Solomon, we are the sons and daughters of God. He is our father. That is part of our covenant with God now. And so we can have faith in God's faithfulness to us. And you know, that's, that's crazy because when you think about what Solomon had to do in order to even be in a position to, to hear that, that response from God, that he had to go to this place, make this journey. He offered up a thousand burnt offerings. He, you know, he did this, this elaborate ritual and then God appears. We don't have to do that. And so, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, I think a lot of people would prefer it if we could just go, okay, here's the ritual I have to do to get God to show up. I, I think that they would really like that better than just having to have faith that what God said one time, you know, a few thousand years ago is just true. Uh, and I think that goes to our human desire to control and to have very specific parameters of knowing that, you know, somehow we can coerce God or make him obligated to appear as we, we want him to versus mm -hmm. when he decides to. So, you know, the, the point here, too, is that this is all a direct result of what David has done. Nothing Solomon's getting, nothing he's receiving is caused or gained through Solomon's effort. He is getting it from the merit of his father. And we're going to hear more about that in a few verses. And, um, you know, I just, I love the fact that we're seeing already in the Old Testament, these statements of unconditional, um, unconditional love being presented here. So Another um, aspect of this verse that's very interesting to me is that Solomon appears in a dream, and we frequently find dreams as the means that God communicates either with people who are not Israelites or kings and leaders. So, and often those two categories overlap. Uh, for instance, Genesis 20, we have God speaking to Abimelech. This is when Sarah had been given to him as a wife, even though she was already married to Abraham. And Abraham said, she's my sister. Jacob in Genesis 31, Jacob uh, has this dream about the goats and, and how to, to do this magical thinking. Um, Laban in Genesis 31, God tells Laban, don't injure Jacob, you know, leave him alone. Joseph in 37, uh, Genesis 37 about his, his brothers bowing to him. And then, of course, we have the baker and the cupbearer for Pharaoh in uh, Genesis 40. And then Pharaoh in chapter 41. And then we have in Judges, we've got this uh, Midianite who is has a dream that um, concerning Gideon. Then Saul in 1 Samuel 28 laments God's will not speak to him in dreams or by a prophet or by the Urim, you know, suggesting that God had spoken to Saul in dreams prior to this. Now, Jeremiah 23 says, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. And in Daniel 2, we have him interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And I bring all this out because there is this push within the Christian community that claims dreams are not a valid way for God to speak. Uh, you know, we've got it throughout Scripture. Right. And I, I, you know, I don't think every dream is the product of some kind of divine inspiration. There's sometimes you just shouldn't eat bad bologna before you go to bed. That's going to give you weird dreams. Well, you should just shouldn't eat bologna anyway. I, I agree. Absolutely. But before we digress, <laughs> there, there is this place in the Bible where God absolutely does affirm dreams can be sent by him to explain, to give prophetic words, to warn to you know, all of these things, even to comfort, uh, these things can come through dreams. God is not limited 
by our preconceived notions of how he should behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think we've addressed that before with the idea of uh, people talking about people in, in in predominantly Muslim nations getting dreams the uh, mm-hmm. of Jesus and then meeting a missionary who explains it to them. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't understand the people who want to say that God doesn't speak through dreams anymore. I mean, it's like, why, why are we putting limits on what God can and cannot do? And I know that there are people who believe that now that we have the Bible, we don't need any of that stuff. And I, to them, I say, you know, well, also, why do you need the creeds? And why do you need preaching? Why do you need church? I mean, right. I mean God, God made us to interact with him in a lot of different ways. Well, and so I don't think dreams should not bother us. They shouldn't. And I, and I don't think dreams will ever, dreams from God will ever present a binding new word to the body. Some, you know, right. a whole new revelation for what God intends for the church and our future, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't think that. But I do think when we're talking about individual situations and individual uh, circumstance, that's where I have had experience with myself and other people, you know, dealing with dreams, providing some insight. And so if God is speaking through a dream, we need to be receptive and open to that. And we also need to recognize, you know, that the Torah actually has certain instructions for how to deal with dreams that we're supposed mm-hmm. to be faithful in how we recount dreams. And if someone says they have a dream and don't, you know, or they, they don't tell a word that lines up with the Torah that violates God's word, then they're not truly God's prophet. Why are there instructions about dreams if we're just supposed to ignore them? Well, and, that was all Old Testament, Emily. Don't you know that? Oh, but hey, how about Acts 2? How, where, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, well, we, we, did, this... there, we didn't have the Bible canonized yet. <laughs> Well, you know, I, so, you I know. know, yeah, in the end days, God's going to give dreams and just, visions. Yeah, we just keep just keep moving <laughs> that goalpost. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. And, we, and we've got to stop doing that. If God says it in his word, we need to take it seriously. If he preserved it for us today, we need to take it seriously. The minute we start contextualizing his word away, then we lose the power and impact of it. Because if we can do that for the parts we don't like, then... Joe Bob down the road can do it, and until we have nothing meaningful left other than mm-hmm. God loves mm-hmm. everyone, yeah, God does love everyone. I believe that with my whole heart. But there's a lot of other stuff in there that He deemed to, to be important. Can you imagine how much time and money He would have saved if the only message is He loves us? I mean, instead of a Bible, we would have truckloads of bumper stickers, and yeah. so. <laughs> I, I just, I don't understand. Uh. <laughs> well, and, what, and what's really funny is like you were talking about, and I, I, we're way up, way far afield of where we ought to be, but <laughs> you know, you were, you were talking about um, the people who have, who, you know, if God talks to someone in a dream, it's not like he's giving a new revelation to the whole church. It's usually something very specific because God is personal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he, he, he speaks to us in personal ways at times. Um, but the, the people who are, are so far against dreams and saying that, you know, well, if God speaks, then it's got to be for the whole church, are also the same, and, and that this is, you know, God's, you're adding to God's revelation, are the same people who, you know, basically treat the creeds on the same level as Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, I think there was a time and place for what the creeds did, and, you know, when you no one had a, a full copy of the Bible, you got to condense a lot of the theology down to something that you could m- memorize. But at the same time, the, I, I think people take them too far, and mm-hmm. uh, you know th- they will never say that they have elevated them to the level of the Bible. But they're they're about half a step away. When most you're of the time. having a biblical debate and they point to a creed as defense against a Bible verse, then mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Then they have. They have essentially lifted that creed above a verse. Right. And so, you know, whether or not they'll admit that or not, the, the action itself demonstrates the truth. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, we, and part of what I wanted to do on this episode was actually to talk about dreams because um, 
the appearance of a deity in a dream was not an uncommon thing in the ancient culture. Even the appearance of a deity that's not the one you ascribe to was not uncommon, and it was considered valid. It was a reason to listen to a god that you did not serve. And so it was not abnormal. We have some really interesting writings, and I'm pulling most of what I'm getting ready to go into uh, from a book called The Interpretation of Dreams in Ancient Near East by A. Leo Oppenheim. He was the editor in, cha- in, in charge of the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary, professor of Oriental Studies at Chicago University of Chicago. And one of his uh, contemporary uh, scholars said he had read more cuneiform than any person living at the time. So, uh, you know, no slouch in this area. And he studied basically every dream text he could get a hold of from this time period, contemporary with the time the Bible was written. And I mean, we're talking Akkadian, Sumerian, Egyptian, Hittite, all of these different cultures and how they approach dreams. Now, we don't want to put what they have to say above what the Bible shows. However, when we understand that this was a cultural norm, then we can begin to understand more of what's going on in the Bible because the Bible doesn't always explain cultural norms. And the reason why it doesn't explain cultural norms is because there's no way in the world that the writer of First and Second Samuel expected two people in different parts of some place called Oklahoma to be discussing their work thousands and thousands of thousands of years later. And so just like I'm not going to explain to you what a car is if I mention it in a, in a conversation, the Bible writers are not going to explain everything they bring up because they expect their audience to know. So. We have to look at what's going on in cultures contemporaneous with the cult, with the Bible uh, to kind of flesh out a fuller picture of what's going on, not because the Bible doesn't give us enough information for faith and salvation, but we don't have that full historical picture without context. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's what I like. This is why I'm a big Bible geek is the historical context. And so... Yeah. Yeah, there's, <laughs> I'm a, there's... I'm assuming if anyone's here, they're also, you know, a big Bible geek. Yeah, and and a good example of that, and I don't know if this is true or not, but there's some meme going around that's talking about when when dictionaries first became popular, there was one in like Danish or something that was that had it, that was full of entries, like an early dictionary that was full of entries of things like horse. Everyone knows what a horse is, and then you you go to. And yeah. and then that's how we wind up with, with you know, things that we don't understand in an ancient Near East context. Again, mm-hmm. from Oklahoma, doing our best here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for scholars everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> and so yeah, well, and okay, so this book that I I just cited um, by Oppenheim, it's available on live uh, online for free at uh, archive.org. They've got all kinds of books there. They've been saving my bacon while all of my books are in the um, in boxes. So uh, pray that we get the study finished soon. But anyway, uh, so one of the the main areas where we have recorded uh, instances of God speaking uh, speaking through dreams are called message dreams. Uh, they're not uncommon with rulers and priests. They're usually given during a time of desperation, and Really, the Hebrew scriptures is considered to be one of the richest sources for these message dreams and how they were used. However, we have enough from other cultures to kind of see a definite pattern. Now, when I say there's a definite pattern, what we need to remember is the people who recorded these didn't go, okay, it checks off this box, it checks off that box. And so they didn't write them down in a specific formulaic order. However, they're... um, they all include these elements as you read through the description of the dreams and the circumstances in which the dreams were given. Um, And usually they do begin in a specific way, which is they tell you the circumstances and the location of when the dream was given. So we can talk about, they might talk about there's, you know, a wartime thing going on that certain sacrifices are being made or an illness needs to be confronted. Um, Who was there? 
you know, was it just the king? Was it the king and the royal entourage? Was it a priest or who the person, who the people involved? Because this didn't always happen in isolation. Uh, then the content of the dream would typically be described. And then it would kind of conclude with the, the dreamer's reaction. Cause the dreamer's reaction is a big part of this. You know, were they shocked? Were they expecting this? Were they uh, comforted? Were they alarmed by the content? And then we would hear about the promise or the prediction made in the dream. And if enough time had elapsed from the time the dream was had and the inscription made, we might even get part of the fulfillment of the dream recorded too. Hmm. Now, most dream accounts do make note that the dreamer was in a deep sleep and that the dream occurred at night or the early morning, there's really only one exception to that. And that is an Egyptian account where a Pharaoh slept beneath the shadow of the Sphinx. Um, there is a historical debate and it kind of, you know, it's part of the scripture. What we need to look at is when did something called incubation begin to happen? Now, incubation has nothing to do with eggs in this case. This is the practice of sleeping in a holy or sacred site with the hope of incubating a dream to get that message from God that it would be allowed to to manifest at that night. And so mm -hmm. you might sleep in a temple, you might sleep in a high place, you might sleep in a place where other people had said they had encountered some kind of deity, all in hopes that the God who inhabited that spot would make themselves known through sleep. Now, we do know that incubation was practiced, but we don't have definitive accounts as to um, the deliberate practice of incubation till much later. What Solomon seems to be doing here is almost, you know, coincidental to the fact that, you know, oh, yeah, he went to Gibeon. He spent the night there. Was it in hopes of having a dream or is it just because it's a long walk back and everybody's tired after, you know, a thousand burnt offerings? That's a lot mm -hmm. of work. Um, it was popularized among the Greeks, especially with the worship of Asclepius. Um, and we're going to talk about Asclepius when we get to John 4. Um, Asclepius was a uh, god of healing. And one of the practices was that if you needed healing or you needed guidance, that you would go to one of his temples and or healing centers, which are scattered all over the Near East. And there's been loads of excavations done on them. And you would sleep, and hopefully Asclepius would show up and give you a prescription in the dream, and then he would um, he would reveal to you how to be healed, and you would enact it, and then you could offer enough another sacrifice. And it gets really, really weird when you start looking at the specifics of how people worshipped Asclepius. Uh, there's some talk about whether there were dogs there that were, you know, would be allowed to lick wounds. Uh, we do know snakes were a major part of uh, the worship of Asclepius. Healing pools were part of uh, the worship of Asclepius. And so people would, would go there in hopes of doing this. And often because, and it wasn't just you went in, you had a nice little spa day, and you, you, you laid down on a comfortable bed. There was actually a, a very prolonged ritual that involved, you know, fasting, sensory deprivation, possibly the ingestion of some psychedelics. We aren't for sure. There's some suggestions that might be true with inscriptions or um, uh, carvings of the opium poppy. And so, hmm. you know, it wasn't just something that you did on a lark, you know, <laughs> it was involved. And um, the reason why we're going to talk about it in John 4 is because, and I believe that's correct, is that's the, the man at the, the pool who where the, quote, angel of the Lord disturbs the water. And Jesus goes in and, and heals the guy because he can never get to the water in time. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, so, okay, I'm just going to have to go there. It's, it's worth repeating. This is one point where we know there's a scribal insertion into the text. Our oldest copies of these manuscripts of John do not say that it's an angel of the Lord disturbing the water. So this was a scribe trying to make sense of why Jesus would be healing in this location. This has nothing to do with the worship of God, the angel of the Lord, any of that. It's actually, we know from um, archaeology that this was a temple to Asclepius. 
And so basically what Jesus does in this moment, it's so cool. He goes into the temple of a rival God and heals without any kind of ritual, without any kind of prop, without any kind of, of magical item or it, it, he just does it with words. And so it's, it, it's a great picture of Jesus saying, I am God and I'm a greater God than the one you're here worshiping. And so the story is so much better without that little scribal insertion. It really is. Mm-hmm. But all of that to say that these, um, these types of incubation, uh, we do have some Egyptian accounts, but they're after Ptolemy. And Ptolemy, of course, was you know, part of Alexander the Great and uh, one of his generals. And so Alexander the Great was known specifically for his love of Greek culture. So it makes sense that Ptolemy would actually introduce this into Egyptian uh, culture. And we actually have an account of uh, an incubation occurring in Babylon while one of the, um, I can't remember if it's a priest or a general, actually uh, is helping, you know, seeking out guidance on how to save a dying Alexander the Great. So, like I said, incubation rituals, they would include this this fasting, sacrifices, bathing, and that seems to delineate what happened in those circumstances with what happens in the Bible. Because when God speaks through dreams, we usually don't have that kind of formal structure in the hopes of provoking a dream from God. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Abimelech wasn't asking for a dream. He wasn't seeking God to explain to him what's going on with Sarah and Abraham. It, God just shows up. Jacob seems to have just stumbled into Bethel without any awareness of where he is, and God shows up. Joseph is not reported to have done any kind of preparation. I could go on, but I think you're beginning to see the point that, that this is not the same kind of ritualized idea. Now, Solomon is reported to have made a sacrifice, but was he making a sacrifice in trying to buy a dream from God, or was he just doing it because it was the appropriate thing to do and then took a nap? Mm-hmm. I, that's, that's the very interesting thing for me. Now, um, because we, we have to make those distinctions, and we need to be aware of those distinctions, because I think sometimes... Whenever we look at the biblical text and we see something that's similar to a, a practice that's occurring at the same time, we're too quick to go, oh, well, this is just what they're doing. And that's not the case at all. Now, another thing that uh, I found interesting, and maybe uh, Tim over Answers to Giants Questions uh, might have more on this, that when we have visual depictions of gods appearing in dreams, they're always portrayed as these giant figures towering over the dreamer. So, um, but there's also, uh, within this, another interesting observation is almost always an ancient text. The dreamer who will receive these visions from God is a man. And the Bible does seem to flow with that. Because if you look at Joel 2, which is quoted in Acts 2, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants, in those days, I will pull out, pour out my spirit. So how we read that is going to influence what we're thinking. So it seems like God is saying, yes, men are going to have these dreams and visions. But then he says, even upon your male and female servants, I'll pour out your spirit. So it seems like God's saying, hey, it's going to happen for everyone. It's going to happen for men and women. It's going to happen not just for kings and priests who can go, you know, vacation in the temple. It's going to happen to people who who are the lowest of society. And I think that's pretty amazing because we we don't see that in any other culture. Women are not elevated, servants are not elevated. They don't deserve to be a deserve the right to be able to speak to a God, even in a dream. Only our faith says everyone can draw near to God. And that's incredible. And I think we forget how incredible it is because we've become toxically comfortable with these ideas. So all of this <laughs> to say Solomon's experience doesn't align uh, with um, most of the elements of these message dreams that were procured through incubation or otherwise. Um, 
the only thing that really seems to line up is this kind of idea that you, the dreamer would wake up with a start and being very startled. And um, the things that kind of separate besides the lack of ritual is also there's no need for an interpreter. Solomon knew exactly what he dreamed. It was not some kind of manic madness being muttered that needed a priest to write it all down in hopes that they could capture the important parts. Because uh, even with Asclepius worship, what would happen is when the person would have this dream and they'd wake up and they would they would be raving about whatever it was they dreamt about, and the priest would have to write it down so that, one, it could be remembered, and two, the priest then had to give a um, an interpretation that made some kind of sense to the dreamer. Solomon doesn't need that. Now, there are points in time where gods appear in dreams in ancient cultures, and the god does give a comprehensible, very direct, unmistakable message. But this is typically during a time of desperation. It's when a king would be seeking guidance from the god on a war decision or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, relief from a famine. There's no desperation here. Solomon isn't looking for some kind of help to, um, to an answer. And historically, as far as incubation, this is way too early on the timeline for Solomon to be deliberately trying to to um, engage in an incubation uh, practice. So well, he probably didn't have any books on it, so he didn't know. Right. Uh, but <laughs> there's. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. He, <laughs> well, you know, he's wise. And we're going to talk about what his wisdom encompassed at some point. Um, but, you know, the, the other really big thing that separates all of these other practices from what happens with Solomon. Solomon wasn't asking anything of God. God shows up and asks Solomon a question. So right there is like, you know, if you needed any more evidence, I don't know what it'd be. Because, you know, when God shows up and says, what do you want? Ask and I shall give it to you. That's completely counter to what we're finding in other ancient religions. Other ancient religions You go and you ask God for stuff. Even in Judaism, Mm -hmm. even in Christianity, we still go and ask God for stuff. And here's God saying, you're viewing this wrong. I'm saying, you, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you, what do you want? As your father, I'm concerned with the desires of your heart. I'm concerned about what you need. And so you just tell me what it is because I'm asking. You're not imposing on me. You're, you're operating within the relationship as I have defined it. Right. So, um, and of course, Solomon's, um, Solomon's experience connects us back to other events in the Bible. I've already mentioned a few of them. Um, but when I read through commentaries, what I found was they wanted to connect this back to Samuel at Shiloh. Remember in the beginning of the book of Samuel, Samuel is sleeping in the temple. He's a boy. And God wakes him up and and calls his name and Samuel goes to Eli and says, hey, what do you want? And Eli's like, I'm not talking to you. Um, And finally they realize, hey, it's God. So I don't see such a huge connection. I mean, yeah, Samuel's at Shiloh in the tabernacle. Excuse me. But I don't see this being a dream event Mm -hmm. because Samuel seems to be awake during a lot of this. They. Want to link it back to Joseph, uh, where you know he gets this. I'm sorry, yeah, Joseph, where he gets this message from God in a dream, with you know the sheaves they're bowing, the the sun and moon and the stars mm-hmm. are bowing, but it's not a direct communication as in a conversation. It's very symbolic. It has to be interpreted. So again, I'm kind of, eh. I I kind of see why they say that, but I'm not completely sold. Now, what I find to be the best connection and this is me because I could not find this anyplace else. And this has sent me on this huge rabbit trail and hunt this week because I'm trying to get this all lined up. So I'm going to throw out where I'm starting with the premise I'm starting from. And maybe by next episode, I'll have more of it nailed down. Uh, I think it fits better with Jacob at Bethel because they're both said to be in a deep sleep that both specifically say that it's a dream. and. Both times, God communicates directly with the dreamer. So 
that was kind of my starting point. And then when I began looking at the, the larger picture of the stories between Jacob and Solomon, I was kind of blown away. Uh, number one, they're both the younger son. They, they aren't the, the heir apparent either for, you know, Jacob's case, it's Isaac's blessing to his son. And in Solomon's case, it's the throne. Uh, they both have multiple wives. They're known for their problems with their wives. And then we have wives who bring idols into their house. Remember Rachel and Leah stole the teraphim with Jacob. Mm -hmm. Then mm -hmm. there's this magical knowledge about nature and how it works. And uh, we talked about that on the Jacob episode where the, the putting the sticks in front mm -hmm. of the watering trough where you get the spotted and striped sheep. Uh, yep. Solomon, yeah, Solomon said to uh, have a great deal of knowledge about the natural world. world. That's in 1 Kings 4.33. And if you read any of the surrounding lore, then it becomes Solomon could understand the birds when they're talking, that when the, the wind blew through the trees, he knew what the rustle of the leaves were saying. I mean, they, they take it to the nth degree in attributing this great wisdom to Solomon. And that's extra biblical, okay? But <laughs> that this idea that they had this ability to see into the natural world and how it works is based, it begins in the biblical text. Hector... <laughs> he's mm -hmm. going to comment. Uh, he wants both, to be part of the show. Absolutely. Uh, both of them had mothers who played major roles in helping them get to their position. Remember, Rebecca helped Jacob disguise himself as Esau so that Isaac, who was basically blind, would bless him instead of... Uh, yeah, make sure I said that right. Rebecca helped Jacob disguise himself as Esau. Yeah, so Isaac would bless Jacob instead of Esau. Where, mm -hmm. remember, this opened up, First Kings opened up with Bathsheba collaborating with Nathan to make sure that Solomon, not Adonia, to get the throne. Both of them are morally ambiguous characters in the Bible. Uh, Jacob, we, we talked about, he's so problematic because he's deceptive and he's willing to play a situation to his favor and gain. Solomon, same thing going on. Both construct memorials or temples to God. Um, Jacob constructs the pillar at Bethel. Solomon, of course, constructs the temple. Jacob says, this is Genesis 28, 22, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. When we get further into Kings and we start talking about the temple, Solomon does not call it a temple most of the time. He calls it a house for the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So we're talking that by it, that, that house, both are prosperous and the Bible makes note of how prosperous they are. This is, you know, that's part of their account. The fact that they are wealthy men, God renames both men. He changes Jacob's name from, you know, Jacob to Israel. Solomon becomes Jedidiah or Jedidiah. Um, and and there's there's more similarities, and the more you look at their stories, the more you begin to realize these similarities really just grow and grow. So, when you see these kinds of similarities between biblical characters, where one writer starts to talk about their subject in the terms that a previous writer, specifically Genesis, in in the same terms, you got to ask why, what's going on here that they're trying to make a point about the similarities between these two people. And I don't have it all lined out yet. I, I'm trying to find why the writer of Sam or Kings wanted us to, to make this comparison, because I think it is there. I, mm. I, I think there's just way too much for it to be coincidental. And again, I'm not finding this in any kind of commentary uh, so, you know, anything I say on this is going to be me speculating and people will need to take it for what it's worth. But I think there's going to be something in Jacob's story that helps us understand <clears throat> Solomon's story so much better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm still piecing it together. My, my gut reaction, and I'm probably going to regret saying this, my gut reaction is the, the final piece of the puzzle is going to have to do with Pharaoh and Egypt because we already have a connection there too. Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter. Jacob, where does he die? He dies in Egypt. So uh, that's also where he blesses his sons. 
as because they've gone there due to a famine. So I think there's going to be something there. I'm still digging into it. I, I can't wait to to put the pieces together because I think I, I think it's going to help un, help us understand Solomon's story in, in a whole new light. Mm-hmm. And so I, those are the kinds of things I, I love digging out. Now, I, I, one other interesting thing that we have going on in this verse is says that uh, God asked Solomon to name what he would have God give him. And if you remember in 2 Samuel 24, 11, God sends the prophet Gad to David and says, hey, here's three things, pick one. And none of them were good because it was mm-hmm. consequences for Israel's sin, which led to the, the census and all of that stuff. Go back and listen to that, uh, that episode. I'm not going to get into all of it again. But um, because of this, there are certain commentators who say that the wisdom Solomon receives is not a blessing, but a curse. Because those three things were were curses, um, I, I have a problem with that. But I do think there is a connection between this passage. Because if you notice Solomon's response as we move forward in verse six, is he specifically notes that um, he is now king over um, a nation that cannot be numbered, and so there there is a connection. I just I have a problem with the idea that wisdom is to be viewed as a curse. Uh, wisdom is one of the attributes of God. We're told specifically that God created the world with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And so um, maybe not so much that wisdom itself was a curse, but the misuse of wisdom led to consequences that can be seen as a curse. And yeah. so... And misusing a gift does not make the gift bad. And I think that's the, the, the distinction we need to make there. Right. So, but yeah, that's where we'll leave off. We got through all of one verse <laughs> today. We didn't even, we got through like the last half of a verse today. Yeah. But that those are the fun things that I, I think to me make the Bible interesting and why we can't just breeze through it and do that prescriptive reading every day where it's like you read so many verses and you, you're good. You, you really have to take time to study and to dig in if you want to get some just more. And, and who yeah. doesn't want more? So, Well, yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm all for learning more about the Bible, getting some more information, figuring things out. That's why I love doing this. And I, I'm looking forward to, to getting more into this book because, again, I mean, I think I feel like we spent a lot of time on this in Sunday school, but I feel like we missed a lot. Uh, and now, granted, you know, there's there's certain things, there's there's uh, age appropriate things, and 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 different issues with you know just the resources that were available because some of the resources we have now are light years. I when I say light years, they're <laughs> way beyond what we what was available uh, mm-hmm. during the time we were children, and especially when most of our lessons came out of the you know the Southern Baptist <laughs> Quarterly. Um, you know, yeah, but well, it, that and that is what it is. Yeah, you and I talked about this too. One of the the really hard things with Solomon in particular is whenever you start studying his story, if you start googling, even with Google Scholar, uh, and looking at different databases, you've got to sift through so much because Solomon, mm-hmm. it, his story is the basis for a lot of pagan ritual witchcraft, uh, Freemasonry. And so you just get into some really wild things that have absolutely no basis in biblical text. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we, we have to be really careful about what we, we take in about Solomon, because just because it's in an article online or even in a book does not make it credible and it does not make it trustworthy. And so uh, we'll we'll talk some more about that when we when we get to um, specifically into the construction of the temple because that's where a lot of these groups pick up on the story and say we're going to co-opt it for our mm-hmm. own and we're going to use what God intended for good for evil because that's what the that's what the enemy does he perverts things mm-hmm. he can't create things so he twists things and so he takes this good story of Solomon. And he turns it into something that's become very toxic and damaging to a lot of people who 
aren't aware of how God's word has been twisted. Right. So, um, you know, so if you're studying Solomon, just you know, be aware. He he's just prime fodder for for craziness, craziness. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that, and <laughs> hopefully, everyone out there is too. If you uh, like what you heard, you know, be sure to give us a review, give us a like, hit hit subscribe, all those you know podcasty things. <laughs> if you really like what you heard, hit us up on Patreon. Uh, dot com slash Raven Creek SC. RavenCreeksc.com is where you can find this show with other show notes, and Raven Creek SC is where you can find us on social media, um, Twitter. That's you, know, mainly Twitter and Facebook. We're kind of inept at any other uh, form of <laughs> social media. But anyway, that being said, come back next week, and we will uh, see what happens with Solomon. So we'll see. You. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.